right now on Matter of Fact. Artificial intelligence is turning the academic world upside down. Like a Pandora's box. Once we opened it, there's no dialing back. This college student says his software can identify who's behind the writing, a human or a machine. We're excited to build a team to talk to teachers. But is this enough to stop the rampant plagiarism? Plus, the administration winds down the emergency response. We're in a different place in our fight against COVID. But what about the COVID-19 survivors known as long haulers? I like being independent and a lot of that is gone. What's ahead for those who are still suffering when the rest of the world moves on? But first, February 1979, the Iranian revolution forced this family to flee their homeland. Those who spoke up and stood up against the state were killed, either executed or assassinated. Now, decades later, these sisters are documenting the deaths of a new generation of protesters. They are second-class citizens in their own country. Iranian women fighting for their freedom. The option of looking the other way was not an option for us. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. It's hard to take in all the news that's happening beyond our borders, yet one international story is breaking through. Last September, 22-year-old Masamini died in Iranian police custody after being arrested for not having her required headscarf or hijab on properly. Her death set off a massive uprising led by women. In cities across Iran and around the world, hundreds of thousands of people have rallied for women's rights, many wanting an end to the Islamic Republic of Iran. According to human rights groups, Iranian authorities have responded violently, with more than 500 protesters killed in the streets and an estimated 19,000 imprisoned. Multiple sources are reporting that at least four protesters were executed for their role in the uprisings. Dozens more are sentenced to death. This story hits home for us here, at matter of fact. Family members of our correspondent Jessica Gomez are refugees from Iran. And she joins us now with more. Soledad, my father, and much of his family fled Iran shortly after the 1979 revolution. Now, over the years, many who have spoken out against the regime, the Islamic Republic of Iran, both inside and out of the country, have been killed, including my father's uncle. Since then, his daughters, despite being at risk themselves, have made it their mission to document those cases so the victims will never be forgotten. I just wanted to know uh, more about the person we are interviewing. For more than two decades, sisters Roya and Ladan Boramond have been fixated on one painstaking task. It's like a puzzle to, to try to figure out what happened in one day. Weaving together the stories of those allegedly killed by the Islamic Republic of Iran. Was he married? Uh, yes. She had two children. Oh. The often horrific details entered into an online memorial, now honoring nearly 27,000 people. And those numbers quickly growing for months into protests in Iran that have led to hundreds of deaths. Human rights groups say most at the hands of the Iranian government. They built their power on violence and they built their survival on violence. Hello. The sisters happen to be my father's cousins. 
So we visited them at home in Washington, D.C. This is your grandmother and uh, your grandmother's uh, wedding. They tell us about life in Iran before the revolution in 1979, growing up in a modern and privileged family. This is a night out. There was music, people were dancing. It was not forbidden at the time. Before the revolution, your private life was your private life. People could wear what they wanted. They weren't worried about drinking or not drinking. They weren't worried about praying or not praying. But after the revolution, things in Iran changed, especially for women and girls. Discrimination everywhere in what they study, where they can work. They are second-class citizens in their own country. It was shortly after the revolution that much of the family knew they would have to leave Iran for good. Those who spoke up and stood up against the state were killed, either executed or assassinated. A decade later, their father, a pro-democracy activist, was among them. French police believe it was Iranian agents who stabbed him to death at his home in Paris. And so I went there and uh, <clears throat> my father was there, but the police was surrounding him and the doctor was there. And a few minutes later, they said it's finished. That was it. We had no choice. We had to do something. Since then, the sisters driven by one mission. We will try to document every single life that has been taken by the Islamic Republic of Iran. I think that's a conversation we should probably have with the whole team. Their nonprofit named in their father's honor, the Abdurrahman Borman Center, for human rights. When we publish, we blur some of the details. Their reports on what's happening now, soon to be presented to a United Nations fact-finding investigation into human rights violations in Iran since the protests began. Information is key, and convincing Iranians to give information is also a challenge because they're scared. Please give a massive, warm, explosive welcome for Roya and Lada Al-Burumand. But that fear giving way to hope as Iranians around the world rally in support of those in their home country. Now, more than ever, we need to tell the story of those giving their lives for women, life, freedom. I had no doubt that uh, one day Iranian women will be burning their scarves in the public squares. What I was not sure about is that, would I see that? I've never seen such a thing in my country, yeah. so it's, it's a dream for us. A dream for the now generations of Iranians forced from their country. What they chant, what they cry about, is that we want an ordinary life. That's all. It's really important that we continue to do what we do, but that the world continue to show that they care, because that is what gives courage to citizens in Iran. Courage, these sisters say, that could one day pave the way back home. We are leaving the last pages empty, for our next visit, when we will go together. There. In Washington, D.C., for Matter of Fact, 
I'm Jessica Gomez. Next on Matter of Fact, artificial intelligence bots are generating essays faster than humans, fooling many professors. That future seems a little sad to me. How this college student hopes his software could curb AI usage in the classroom. There's aspects that these computers can never co-op. Plus, COVID-19 long haulers fear a new world that's moving on from the pandemic and leaving them behind and later. The reason for its longevity was self-repairing cement. Why the ancient Romans may be the key to ending our infrastructure's crumbling, deteriorating concrete. You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. Artificial intelligence is shaking up the way we create art and music and writing, and now it's dividing the academic world and threatening jobs. ChatGPT is popular with students who use the AI technology to create essays and other writing assignments. The user types in keywords or asks a question, and the bot generates articles, papers, even poetry. Teachers are concerned about plagiarism and the ethics of letting a computer do the typing and the thinking. A computer science student at Princeton University believes he has a solution. Edward Tian created GPT-0. It's a software that detects essays written by artificial intelligence. Edward Tian, it's so nice of you to join us. Thank you. So let's begin with a layman's explanation of how ChatGPT actually works. How it really works is that it's ingesting gigantic portions of the internet, uh, large and large quantities of data, and it's looking through it for patterns, and it's sort of regurgitating these patterns to generate text. So I would caution that it's not actually coming up with anything original. It's reading and ingesting a lot, and it does know a lot, and it's regurgitating it. Talk to me a little bit about your software. How does that work? GPD-0, it's a software that detects if an essay is AI or human-written. It uses two big variables right now. One was perplexity, which is almost having a language model like ChatGPT and asking it how familiar it is with a piece of text and how likely it is to generate it itself. And then there's a big picture indicator we call burstiness, which is measuring variance in this writing over time. Humans have creativity and sudden bursts in creativity versus these machines are pretty constant over time. What was the impetus for creating GPT-0? Humans deserve to know the truth of whether something is AI-generated or human-written. No one wants to be deceived. AI-generative technologies are like a Pandora's box. Uh, once we opened it, there's no dialing back. And when we're building these incredible new technologies, it's critical that at the same time we're building the tools to adopt them responsibly. Does your software have any limitations? We tried it out and we found for something very short, like a little sonnet, it was challenged. Yes, uh, definitely. It's not perfect. There's a lot of limitations when we're doing this, like with short sonnets, as well as with edge cases, different languages. And what we're doing right now is we're transitioning uh, for like training tools for education use cases. And now we're highlighting portions of essays that are more likely to be human generated, which turns out to be something teachers want instead of just having this black and white, yes or no catch all tool. We often talk about the failures of AI, but I'm curious if you think ChatGPT has a value 
just in, in general. And of course, you know, small businesses for turning out flyers or emails. You know, I, I sort of think of a lot of uses that aren't really plagiarism. It's great at getting people started. In terms of finishing the job, uh, I realized that you really need to do it at the end, whether it's for finishing your essay or fact checking, because again, anything that's wrong in the training data will translate up towards the end. So it's never going to be able to do the job of a journalist per se and uh, checking all the facts. What do you see in the future for ChatGPT? I almost think of a future 10 or 20 years down the line where everybody's using ChatGPT to write their essays. And that future seems a little sad to me. There's so much beauty in human writing and there's aspects that these computers can never co-opt. I think in a future where everyone's writing with the machine, it'll still remain a valuable skill to write originally. Edward Tien, thank you for talking with me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up. I'm just trying to get myself back up and working. Why are so many COVID-19 long haulers struggling to get the medical care they need? And later. Her contributions to science have made the world more beautiful and less fungal. A history lesson about the woman who helped save the nation's cherry blossoms. At the start of the pandemic, the White House declared a public health emergency and a national emergency, which provided extra financial and medical support to hospitals, clinics, and patients. On May 11th, those emergency declarations will end, and that means a different world for many Americans. Some will have to pay for COVID testing and treatment, and that could be a big challenge for folks who've got long COVID. They experience persistent symptoms like headaches and dizziness and chronic fatigue and severe pain. The CDC says there are currently more than 15 million long haulers. Our correspondent, Dina Demetrius, looks at the impact of long COVID on one California woman's life. I like being independent and self-sufficient, and a lot of that is gone. In the recesses of what was once a more agile mind are Cindy Lee's memories of herself before contracting COVID. Since spring of 2020, Lee has been enduring the myriad frightening symptoms her COVID infection left behind. Even now I get things that are new. My typical heart rate was 65 beats a minute, and all of a sudden my heart rate's going up to 100, you know? And I'm thinking, am I having a heart attack? She went on heart medication. Then within a few months, a parade of new symptoms came to stay. Blisters and rashes spontaneously appear constant extreme fatigue, distorted vision, and significant brain fog. But, you know, the first one, I'm blanking again, and I apologize. I'm sorry, I went blank again. I've lost track of what we were talking about. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can see the areas in which you're just so struggling to get through the conversation. Like so many long haulers, losing her health has also meant losing her livelihood. I'm living off of almost nothing. Lee's own burdens include visiting cardiologists, neurologists, neuroophthalmologists, and more. She says it's been a battle to even have them acknowledge she has long COVID, something Lee noticed her primary doctor recently added to her file. Of the handful of long COVID clinics in the country, the one at Mayo Clinic run by Dr. Ryan Hurt is at the forefront of actually treating patients. Using some of the medications that we've used for other 
uh, like disorders and diseases that impact the immune system. So we're trying to decrease the inflammatory response that we're seeing in these patients by using some of those traditional medicines. Hertz says the real story lies in PET scans, a test long haulers rarely get. Rather than showing the brain's structure, the brain's ability to function lights up a PET scan. And we have found that they're pretty abnormal in many of these long COVID patients. But we know that the inflammatory response that persists does impact the brain. In Los Angeles, I'm Dina Demetrius for Matter of Fact. Ahead on Matter of Fact, the relics of ancient Rome have stood the test of time because of a special concrete. Find out how that key component could transform how we build roads and bridges. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. There's a modern environmental innovation getting inspiration from ancient Rome. Concrete is used to build the majority of the world's bridges, roads, dams, and other structures. It's the most consumed product on Earth after water. But making concrete's main component, cement, produces massive amounts of CO2. It's responsible for 8% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And when concrete cracks, air and water gets in, weakening the structure. So researchers at MIT look to the Romans to find a greener, more durable way to make cement. The Pantheon, a Roman landmark, was built more than 2,000 years ago. It has the largest unreinforced concrete dome in the world. It survived fires and storms and earthquakes and attacks. The researchers analyzed samples of ancient Roman concrete, and they found the reason for its longevity was self-repairing cement. The secret ingredient, lime, and a special mixing method. After years of testing, the team succeeded in replicating the Romans' cement-making secrets. And now a tech startup is producing an eco-friendlier product to revolutionize and clean up how we build. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, a little-known story about the cherry blossoms in Washington, D.C., and how one woman saved the day. Finally, it is an annual pilgrimage that draws tens of thousands of visitors to the Tidal Basin in Washington, D.C. The cherry blossoms in full bloom. The attraction is thanks to a gift of 3,000 cherry trees from Tokyo's mayor back in 1912. That wasn't the first batch of trees that was sent to the U.S. In 1909, First Lady Helen Heron Taft accepted a donation of 2,000 cherry trees from a Japanese chemist. When they arrived in D.C., something was wrong. The saplings were infected. That discovery was made by Flora Patterson, a fungus expert, or what's called a mycologist for the Department of Agriculture. The entire shipment was eventually burned on the National Mall. Patterson saved the day, but her legacy goes beyond the cherry trees. She's also credited with identifying a fungus that killed mature chestnut trees along the East Coast. That led to the passing of the Plant Quarantine Act of 1912, mandating inspections for imported plants. For 27 years, Patterson led the U.S. National Fungus Collections. It now holds more than a million fungal specimens, making it the largest in the world. Her contributions to science have made the world more beautiful and more enjoyable and less fungal. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and YouTube.